0: In this new year, we begin a new short series in Romans chapter 8. Today, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. We welcome those visiting among us here and also those that might be joining us online. Hear now the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation... For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. What is the central theme of the Christian faith? Derek Thomas asked that question in his excellent series on Romans 8, which I have benefited from for this sermon and, Lord willing, in the future. Thomas says, In contemporary Western culture, it's become common to think of Christianity as restrictive, harsh, and judgmental. But those who believe this, he says, have sadly misunderstood the central theme of Christianity. What is it? What would you say? How do you teach your kids this? How do you talk about this to an unbeliever or to a neighbor? The central theme of Christianity is the forgiveness of sins offered freely to sinners because of what Christ has accomplished. The heart of the Bible, of Reformed theology, and of this church, Emmaus Road, The foundation of our life together is Christian comfort as the chief fruit of the gospel of Christ. The gospel, literally good news, brings us a message of what God has done, Brian Lee says. Christ has delivered us from our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The gospel is not how to save yourself, how to clean yourself up, how to try harder or be better, it's an announcement of what God has done, which is why what Christ says on the cross is so important for us. It is finished. We saw this today in question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. Yes, we hear the verdict of God's law, how great our sin and misery are, but now we hear as well the good news of the gospel, how we are delivered from our sin and misery. And as we look at Romans 8 in this new year together, we will see that God is saving us for his glory, freeing us from the bondage of sin, transforming us to be more like Christ. And ultimately, he will bring the new kingdom to come, the new heavens and the new earth. Romans 8 covers that entire span. It's like the Mount Everest of the Bible, someone said. It is so condensed with the gospel. And it speaks to us today in stress and sickness, in sin and difficulty, in trials, in weariness. It helps us when our heads are kind of downcast and when we're afraid and when we're doubting and when we're overcome with guilt to be assured of what we have By faith in Christ. This chapter is about gospel assurance. It's about how the work of Christ, applied to us by the Spirit of Christ, brings us into a settled enjoyment of God. It's about the work of the triune God to save us. It's about how the gospel brings us all the way home. It begins with no condemnation under the wrath of God. It ends with no separation from the love of God. It's good news for a new year. First, how we are saved. The very first verse of the first chapter of Romans tells us the author. Maybe Romans is a new book to you. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're wondering what Christianity teaches. and It tells us in Romans 1 that Paul wrote this book. Paul was a citizen of a Greek city in present-day Turkey named Tarsus at that time. He received an outstanding Greek education. He was educated under a rabbi named Gamaliel. He was the son of a Pharisee. He became a Pharisee. He hated the church. On his way to persecute more of God's people, the risen Christ appeared to him saved him, called him to be an apostle, set him apart to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. What you have in your hand, not only in Romans, but in the entire Bible, is the word of God to us. It's inerrant, infallible, inspired, authoritative. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, most likely delivered to them by Phoebe, who was a member of one of those churches in the port cities of Corinth. The Christian faith had already been established there. The church was not founded in Rome by Peter, nor by Paul. Paul hadn't been there before he wrote this letter. There were Christians in Rome from not only Jewish background, but predominantly, it appears, Gentile background, from all the nations. Some from Rome were there on the day of Pentecost. The gospel has been thriving there as Paul is writing this letter. And Paul sees at this point in his ministry that the hope would be he would see the gospel go forth from Rome west, go west, young man. At that point, far west was where? Spain. So Paul's thinking Rome will be the base for the gospel going to Spain, much as Antioch was the base of the gospel going to the Middle East. The book of Romans has a three-part structure. Guilt, grace, gratitude. The Heidelberg Catechism, which we confess question one today, also has that structure based on this book. The very bad news is what we see first. Paul says in Romans 8 that there is this thing called the law of sin and death. This chapter especially these first few verses is loaded what's paul saying well he's not saying that the law is bad the law is good spiritual and holy as christians we delight in god's law but he's saying that in the first use of the law the law drives us to see our sin the law itself reveals sin and it condemns us the law cannot save us because we're sinners. The law says, I'm weak, I'm a failure in myself, I'm guilty, and I deserve death. The law, in this sense, knows nothing of grace. It says, do this and you will live. Do you want to try to earn your way to heaven? Here you go, you've got to do it perfectly, perpetually, without sin. The law excludes us in this sense from God's presence. It provokes hostility in us in this use. Paul said that in Romans 7. Before the law came, I didn't know that I should not covet in a sense. Remember he says that, verse 7? But now when I hear the law say, don't covet, I want to covet. Kids, when your mom and dad say, no Twix ice cream for dessert, it makes you want that ice cream more. When you see a sign that says no trespassing, it makes you want to explore. There must be something there that I want to see, right? The law provokes that. It exacerbates it. It's like Augustine. When he wrote the Confessions, he said he stole those pears, not because they were wonderful tasting pears from Oregon. He had better pears at home. He stole them because he got pleasure in sinning and in enjoying that sin itself the law says romans 8 1 i am condemned the picture is of a courtroom we're the condemned it's the sentence and it's the execution the guilt of adam's sin is mine my own sin is mine As David Strain says, condemnation is the condition under which every human lives, from the murderer who killed those people in Idaho to the neighbor that you live next door to that is upstanding and has everything perfect in their yard. Condemnation is the state of you and me, our parents, our children, our neighbors, our friends, unless God does something. The dreadful sentence of condemnation is everlasting. Eternal hell. It's what we deserve. And the question is, how can Paul say no condemnation? How can I, a sinner, be brought from condemnation to What's the opposite of condemnation, loved ones? Justification. Well, Paul's going to tell us. God did something. It's not something in us. It's not something done by us. It's entirely God's initiative. God sent his son, verse 3. The gospel is more than Jesus dying for our sins. Thomas brings this out. It is Trinitarian. The father sends the son. The son accomplishes a work. The spirit applies that to us. The gospel is the central message of the covenant of grace, promised in Genesis 3, unfolding throughout history. And now God sends his son, how? In the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus himself didn't come, the son did not come, in the likeness of flesh. That would mean he wasn't really flesh and blood. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't kind of appearing as some third thing. God did not send his son in the flesh of sin. That would mean he was a sinner. But Jesus had no original sin and committed no sin. As Ferguson says, he did not send his son in the flesh of Adam. Christ wasn't sent to the Garden of Eden. But in the likeness of sinful flesh, true man, human body, human soul, as we saw a few weeks ago. In the likeness of the flesh of sin, he came to experience what Adam's sin did to our flesh. Causing sadness, sorrow, death, rejection. He didn't come without suffering he came as the man of sorrows he came for a purpose paul says he came as a sin offering not for his sin but for mine as a representative as a substitute as the last adam jesus did not just save us from sin as though sin and death remains intact and we're delivered from it but what does paul say The language is really precise. He says, God condemned sin in the flesh. Sin is that powerful foe that has held us captive. It has been condemned, loved ones, in Christ. It has been overthrown. Paul sees the condemnation of sin to consist in God executing his judgment on sin In the atoning death of his son, the heart of the gospel is substitution. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So it's not only that God forgives your sin, loved ones, but he forgives your sin by imputing that sin to his own son and punishing it in Christ. Christ takes the covenant curse. He dies not only a torturous physical death, but much more than that. My sin is laid on him. The judgment of God is laid on him. And the reason there's no condemnation for those in Christ is because there was condemnation for him. Our sin condemned in Christ. He becomes a horrific mass of depravity in the sight of the Father. He is the ultimate obscenity on the cross. The most intense, dense concentration of evil that has ever been experienced on this planet was there on the cross. He is punished as a criminal under the justice of God for my sin. He drinks the cup of the Father's wrath for us so it won't come to our lips. He's baptized into hell that we might be saved. The measure of The torment of Christ as the God-man is the measure of the torment that we deserve and that he bore. This is what brings us to rejoice, to live in thankfulness. At Calvary, the last Adam, the true Israel of God, defeated the serpent he did what the first Adam in Israel and all of us failed to do. And he said, It is finished. The covenant of works has been fulfilled. He completed the mission of redemption the Father sent him to do. He was raised on the third day for our justification. God has justified the ungodly. God is holy, He is true to the integrity of His being, and He justifies sinners. He sends his son who removes the curse of the law in his death and fulfills the just demand of the law in his life. How then do I benefit from that? Secondly, Paul goes on to say, let's talk about redemption applied. There are two classes of humans. Covenantally, there are those who are in Adam, all of us by nature, And those who are in Christ by grace. No one belongs to themselves. Kids, you live in a world, and our own sinful hearts kind of agree with this that says, well, you can be what you want to be, you can choose what you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do, and say whoever you are is who you are, right? We lived in a world of Romans 1 under the judgment of God. But there are only two classes in Adam or in Christ. Romans 5.18 says, As through one trespass, Adam's sin, condemnation came to all men. So now one act of righteousness leads to justification. The question is, how do we get out of Adam into Christ? Do we do it? Do we earn it? Neither of those is true. It is because of God's work in joining us to Christ. Therefore, Paul says, do you notice that? He uses that word to remind us of justification and union with Christ. These are the saving benefits of the gospel. Christ is the gospel. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign, his return, Christ is and all he is and all he's done. Now, these are the benefits. The opposite of condemnation is justification. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is a legal term. God, the judge of the universe, declares us sinners to be righteous. And the question is, how can he do that? Is this a legal fiction? Some of you know that language well, perhaps, in your work. Legal fiction is a term in law. It's an assumption of fact made by the court as a basis for deciding a legal question. So if Bob begins to live on the corner of Joe's farm, Bob begins to act as if the property is his, Joe never complains... Bob will eventually take possession of the land. And the court will pretend a grant for the land was given to Bob, even though a grant never was given. That's, as one man says, a legal fiction. When people say justification is a legal fiction, they're saying God declares people to be righteous when there is no righteousness there. Is that true? It's not. Justification can only happen if our sins are imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Double imputation. What does that mean, kids? Well, say you're traveling with your friends one day. You're going on a long road trip and you don't realize how much gas has gone up in price and you don't have enough cash to cover your gas. So what do you do? You call mom and dad. You say, mom and dad, Wire some money to my debit card so I can pay for gas. I'm stuck in Wyoming. Help! Mom and dad, wire the money to you. Strictly speaking, is that your money? No, you didn't earn it. It's transferred to you. It's from your parents. But because they transferred it to your account, now it is yours. And that's what it means when it comes to imputation, We have the righteousness of Christ, unlike Bob, who never got a grant for that land. He just started to live on that land. The righteousness God demands in his law is fully present in Christ. Jesus didn't just die for us, he lived for us. His obedience, his assets, his merit, that's how an unjust person can stand before a holy God. All of the kingdom blessings are granted to us sinners through Christ as a matter of justice. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus earned heaven for us. He made a proper satisfaction to God and the justice of God on our behalf. So, you're not on the starting line with Adam in Eden. This year is the 100 year anniversary of Christianity and liberalism. You can see on the back we have Table Talk magazine, which this month talks all about that wonderful book. J. Gresham Machen. In the book, he says Christianity is Christianity. Liberalism is not Christianity at all. In case you wonder, that's the summary of it. It's another religion. He says this. Mation, Christ paid the penalty of sin for us. He stood the probation for us. That's the reason why those who have been saved by Jesus, you today in Christ, are in a far more blessed condition than Adam before he fell. Adam before the fall was righteous in the sight of God, but he was still under the possibility of becoming unrighteous. Those who are saved in Christ are not only righteous in the sight of God, but you are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. In your case, Christian, the probation is over, not because we have stood it successfully. It's not over because we have earned the reward of blessed assurance, which God has promised on the condition of perfect obedience. But it's over because Christ has stood it for us, Christ has merited for us the reward by his perfect obedience to God's law. He takes my sin, my guilt, my shame. He gives me his peace, his grace, his righteousness, his relationship with his loving Heavenly Father. The Bible says we are saved by works, not our works, Christ's works. To be righteous is to have merit, to be not guilty, and to possess that perfect quality of uprightness that God's law demands. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 4, foundationally because Christ's perfect act of obedience and passive obedience, his law-keeping and his death is imputed to us. So the question remains, though, how That might be true, but how do we get out of Adam into Christ? Romans 5, 17. For all those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. We receive this by faith. We have free acceptance with God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ once imputed to us. Resting faith, trusting faith, In the finished work of Jesus. Are you in Christ today? The gospel secures for believers every saving benefit in Christ by grace alone. Justification and sanctification and kind of surrounding this as well, union with Christ. Do you see what Paul says? For those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Christ is the vine, you are the branches. He is the head, you are the body. He is the foundation, you are the living stones. What does this mean for you day by day? Your good days and your bad days. Romans 8.1 says, there is no trace of condemnation. No, that's a good no. Most times we don't like to hear the word no. No. No more second helpings of that steak. I I was hoping for a second helping. No more relationship. I'm breaking up with you. No more second helping of ice cream. We don't like the word no, but here it's a good no. It's a blessed no. It's a no that is for now. Right now when I sin and stumble, right now when Satan accuses me, Right now when I have regrets and failures. Right now when my mind is darkened by doubt. Right now when my guilty conscience brings up my sin. Right now when I'm weary and discouraged. This is the gospel remedy to the law that says you are a guilty, miserable failure. Not one condemnation. I know I'm a sinner. I'm a bigger sinner than I ever realized but my sin has been condemned in Christ and will never be condemned again in me. There's no double jeopardy. There's not a single sin in your life, Christian, that can condemn you now that you're in Christ, even when you've stumbled, even when you have once again committed that sin that you repented of just the day before. The blessed state is now and it's forevermore. Many of our troubles in the Christian life are due to our failure to realize the truth of this now and no. When we don't celebrate the now of the gospel, the it is finished of what Christ said, we try to live for ourselves. We're defensive. We're overly critical. We fear people. We live in unrepentant sin because we're not resting in Christ and we're not fighting sin by the power of the Spirit. The now gives you assurance today and forevermore. Assurance that is as gigantic and sure as God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The dullest, frailest, weakest, most sinful Christian is brought to assurance of salvation because of this promise. How do we realize this then? We come on Sundays, we hear the law read. We hear the gospel of assurance. We read during the week the Bible with Christ at the center of our Bibles. One goal might be for us, I'm going to try to do this as we go along, to memorize Romans 8 together. A new year. Maybe you're beginning your Bible reading, maybe you're continuing your Bible reading. Maybe you've memorized before, maybe you haven't. An encouragement to memorize these verses as we go through them together. That we might know Christ, the power of his resurrection. The truth of Romans 8 is good news. But it's not disconnected from Romans 7. What does Paul say at the end of Romans 7? Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body Of death. Paul, there is a Christian in Romans 7, struggling, reminding us of this. When we limit the Christian experience to just positive, victorious life stuff, when we leave out the war and the struggle and the honesty of it, we're like a musician who tries to play a harp with a bunch of broken strings, Hendrickson says. It's a warped message. Yes, for the believer, sin no longer reigns in our life, but it's still a powerful force in our life because of our unbelief. We forget who we are. We think we're back in Adam. The good we want to do, Romans 7, we don't do. The evil that we don't want to do, we do. Sin dwells in us even as we are in Christ, even as the Holy Spirit's in us. We've died to sin, but sin has not died in us. We've been set free from the law of condemnation, but we're not yet perfect according to the commands of God's law. It's a battle. You have conflict. You recoil at your sin, but the sign of God's grace in you is the fact that there is the battle there. As Strain says, there's no trouble in a graveyard. Before you were a believer, when sin ruled you, you stood condemned. There was no warfare. You thought you were keeping the law. That's what Paul said as a Pharisee. I've done it. I've achieved it. I've got the best education. I'm the rising star in Judaism. I'm righteous. Then Paul met Christ. He was humbled. He saw that the law showed him his sin. And he saw more amazingly... Given what God knows about him, and given what God knows about me, and what I know about me, what a wretched man that I am, how amazing it is that God loves me. Here's the paradox of the Christian life. The law says you're weak, guilty, and failing. The gospel says you are loved, secure, and safe forever in Christ. And both are true. As one author says, your life is like a house with different aspects. Romans 7 is the cold, shadowed side facing away from the sun, your basement today, in darkness. Romans 8 is the warm, sunny side when the sun is felt. The law speaks, and we hear the gospel. The law confronts us with our sin, but in Christ, the gospel has the final word. What's Paul's answer to being a wretched man? No condemnation for those in Christ. What message do struggling sinners like us, sinners of the Romans 7 type, need to hear to press on with the struggle today that the commandments of God's law no longer condemn us because Christ was condemned for us? Romans 8 also says, you've been set free from this law of sin and death by the Spirit of life. The Holy Spirit. That God has overturned the guilt of your sin in Christ and the power of your sin. That's what we're going to be seeing in the weeks ahead, beginning in verse 5. We're going to see implications here for our life together as Christians at Emmaus Road. We're going to see that assurance is not presumption. Our confidence is in the gospel and the Spirit's gift to us. That the Holy Spirit now has come, quickening our mortal bodies, strengthening our failed minds, so that we can complete the course by grace through faith in Christ that God has for us. That the Holy Spirit is setting you free from the treadmill of beating yourself up, of performance mentality. That now by the Spirit, the commandments of God have been internalized. You once hated them, now you struggle, but you do say by the grace of God, I love your law, O God. The law no longer is a whip to condemn me in Christ, but Ferguson says it's a coal of fire by the Spirit to inflame us. We're going to see that. That is a consequence of what Christ has accomplished, we live out the law in gratitude by the power of the Spirit. Not to be justified. The opposite of no condemnation is not sanctification. It's justification. But by the power of the Spirit, we live not to be justified because we have been justified, but because we are being sanctified now more and more. Because Christ fulfilled the law for us, the Spirit does fulfill the law in us. Both are true. Augustine shares a story of what this looked like for him. After his conversion, he was walking through a town where several ladies that he once knew intimately called to him and asked him to come visit them as he once did. Augustine, Augustine, they cried out, it is I. Augustine responded and said, yes, but it is no longer I. I. The reign of sin has been defeated in us through the work of Christ. To live in sin now as we once were in Adam is impossible for the Christian. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? It's a fight. But Emmaus Rowe, we want to encourage each other in this together. One way we do that today is in the Lord's Supper. As we come to the table, we don't come to prove ourselves or reinvent ourselves. We don't come to try harder. We don't come as a reward for what we've done. This is God's gift to sinners. The love that rescues and redeems you is from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God comes near to you on your good days and on your bad days. The Father himself loves you. And in the supper, we are united together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Amen.